everybody. Welcome to episode 128 of Literary Disco Digest. On today's episode, we read poetry, good poetry. We'll be talking about Gregory Pardlow's collection of poems, Digest, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015, and uh, which I am unsure whether whether to pronounce as a noun, digest, or as a verb, to digest. And this is an ambiguity that I am positive is intentional because this is an incredibly dense, complicated, and I'm just going to come out and say it, downright brilliant series of poems. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. How you guys doing? Good to good. see you. How you been? Good. Good. Uh, good. Julia, tell us, tell us all about you, Julia. Tell us about the last five days of your life. What have you done? Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I have an almost <laughs> eight-month-old baby, so that's like asking me what the last, like, portion of my Homeric Odyssey was like. <laughs> we went to a science center and then <laughs> on Sunday. Oh, well, the day before that, I did something really dumb and I stayed out okay. till 3.30 in the morning partying at a friend's house because I was like, I'm a cool mommy. Nope. And then, oh, you know, no. my baby gets up nope. at 5.30. So what was that? decision-making process like so that's a that's some florida project <laughs> shit right there you can't, you can't be doing that uh you know it was worth it i had a great time um but <laughs> then i was like greg was sick and i was whatever that is stupid <laughs> and we went to a science center and ah. let her touch and lick a bunch of stuff and then she okay. got really sick okay. so that's been kind of dominating my week um so hold on, just so just so listeners are clear, Julia got fucked up and then let her kid lick stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and 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 I'm the asshole. This uh, isn't about you. Those Todd. two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> I think they can both be true at the same time. Anyway, it was a really uh, highbrow week for me because of all that. Um, and basically, the only thing that I did that had you know cultural value was read this poetry collection so thank you guys oh, for keeping okay. it real <laughs> we are happy to cleanse your dirty soul what about you Ryder? what have you been up to i've been camping I, I camped for two weeks just over two weeks with my three and a half year old and my wife and uh we we we, we make an odyssey every year up to my um my my parents' house in Northern California, and we, we spent Fourth of July up there, and a bunch of people from L.A. come out, and friends from all over the country come, and everybody camps out on my parents' property. Um, you guys are always welcome, by the way. Um, Is there room I, service? No, no, that's the thing. You gotta, you gotta pitch a tent. But, yeah. um, and we pitch a tent, too. Like, even though there's room in the house, we always, you know, we make it what's, an adventure. What's the bathroom situation? Uh, you can use the bathrooms in the house. Okay. It's on 15 acres of redwood forest. It's beautiful. And, you know, it just becomes this giant. It's basically like a music festival without the music. It's just people <laughs> gathering. And, um, and that's like, that was about four or five days of the camping trip. The rest of the time we were in Northern California camping. And, you know, just with a three and a half year old, it's an intense experience. You always think that a vacation is a, a respite, you know, a break. <laughs> but when you have a kid, it's much more of a, like, a Homeric odyssey, like Julia said. <laughs> It's, it's like a real workout. It's a mental yeah. and physical workout. And what's crazy is you're, 
you're on that, like the whole time we're on the trip, we're like, why are we doing this? This is so much work. And then like every night after we put our son to bed in the tent and we're sitting around a campfire and it's just me and my wife and we're talking and it's like, oh, this is why we do this. It's because like for the first time in months, we're not just like watching Walking Dead or whatever stupid TV show and like not talking to each other. We're, look, we're sitting around a campfire and we're having conversations. And like, meanwhile, you watch your, your kid's brain just expand. Yeah. It's like right. the second they get out of their routine and they're in the natural world or anything different, it, the conversations are just changing and every day is like this crazy new experience and he's so alive and and like we come home and his vocabulary is tripled and his cultural references are just so much more vast than when we left and his natural references you know it's like i don't it's it's amazing it's so you come home and you're like wow that was worth it now i need a break and i want a vacation but it was so worth it um so that's you know just traveling as a parent and camping as a parent is a whole whole new thing and and it's so funny because like Every every stage that you're in, because you know we've been doing this. This is our third year with our son. So we we took him when he was six months old camping, and then a year and a half, and then two and a half, and now three and a half. So I guess that's the fourth year. Jesus. Math. <laughs> Either way, it's like we do this every year, and every time you're like, oh, the next phase of parenting is when it gets easier, mm-hmm. and it never does. Like certain things get easier. Like yeah, we're not worried about him licking things like you are right now, wow, Julia. Yeah. Right? But now yeah. we're worried about him drowning in the pool or you know running off in a campsite uh uh without us knowing you know and this was interesting because this year we were staying in campsites and it was a social experience which we usually don't we usually try and be as isolated as possible and like we seek that out and but you can't avoid it fourth of july camping there's going to be other people camping around you and this year like our son who's like super social was just meeting friends and every so it just become a gang of kids and we're like oh right that's right when you're a kid and you go camping it's all about meeting a bunch of other kids and running around and so we're like we found ourselves like you know rounding up 10 children at a time and like trying to keep track (laughs) of our son and older kids are on bicycles and he's running after them and getting lost and we're like oh my god sounds great super fun though yeah Yeah, it was really really great um, well, actually, I sort of did a combination of the two things that you guys did. Mm. Uh, I was up in Idlewild uh, teaching at the Idlewild Arts Academy. Um, so oh, Idlewild, I love that place. Yeah, it's so cool. Idlewild, for those of you not in Southern California, is um, the sort of artist commune on top of a very large mountain. It's about 45 minutes from where I live in Palm Springs. Um, and during the summertime, they have an arts academy for high school students, and then they also have a adult component. Um, but the adults and the kids are all in school at the same time with each other. So, like, you go into the cafeteria for lunch, and there's a bunch of adults, and then there's a bunch of artistic 14-year-olds. Um, cool. So that was sort of cool. <laughs> <laughs> there was, there was, there's this, you know, there's a weird thing. Like, I, I don't know if this is the same. I mean, maybe, um, maybe a high school teacher can tell us. But, like, you know, when I was a kid, if you were in band, you were a geek. And, of course, That's then you just anymore. then... Right, and then you just started a band and became the Strokes or whatever, and then you <laughs> became cool. Um, but so this is these are these are musicians that were there, painters, sculptors, pottery people, like the whole spectrum of the arts. And so even though they're like these sort of artistic kids, you can see them forming into their little cliques and stuff. And I was enjoying watching that. But there was this one point. Um, there are these three like seventeen-year-old boys. And they were like, did you see that, that girl with the, with the light eyes? 
uh, I think she's in the adult pottery class. And the other guy's like, yeah, man, yeah, I did, I did. And they're like, do you think she's like 20? Like, yeah, yeah, I think she's 20. So he's like, so I could ask her for her number, and it's like conceivable that she'd say yes. <laughs> and I, it was like all I could do not to just be like, don't do it. <laughs> it's not going to be a yes. <laughs> but why shouldn't they a- try? And, and It's you know. absolutely not going to be a yes. <laughs> well, they shouldn't try if it's technically illegal right. for a yeah. 20-year-old and a 17-year-old to... Right. Oh, God. So that was funny. But anyway, um, so I was up there. Uh, I taught for um, three or four days. Um, in fact, that's where I met um, uh, Gregory Pardlow. So he was up there teaching as well. And I have to be frank, I'd, I'd never heard of him before. Um, and I heard him read from uh, a new book of his, which is a book of essays called Air Traffic. Um, his father was an air traffic controller. Um, and he read this amazing essay, actually, though, about his family appearing on the show Intervention oh. uh, to intervene on his brother's behalf. His brother was an Whoa. alcoholic. Yeah, and his brother was in a band called City High, which I'd never heard of, but which apparently was a very popular sort of like boys to men type band in the late 90s. Um, and so I was totally enraptured by this essay that he read. And then, you know, I got to talk to him and his wife and his kids and stuff. And it was very cool. Um, and then I was looking at all of the books there and I was like, oh, apparently, <laughs> apparently he won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> You're like, you seem pretty smart. You seem good at what you do. You seem like you've thought about things. Yeah. And then I I sort of, in retrospect, I embarrassed myself. He was like, yeah, I live in Brooklyn. And I was like, oh, do you like living there? He's like, yeah, I I like living there. And then I read uh, Digest, and I was like, oh, my God, his entire book is about, like, the essence of being in Brooklyn for your life. (laughs) I'm like, like, oh, God, I'm a moron. Um, It takes everything within him not to just say, read my book, dude. Yeah, read read the book, dude. (laughs) How do I feel about living in Brooklyn? Read my fucking book. It's the one with the Pulitzer Prize sticker on it, if you're looking. Um, I didn't realize you met him. That's so awesome. Yeah, he's very cool. Um, The super cool thing, though, about teaching up in Idlewild is um, when your faculty up there, they, they give you your own house to live in. And so I had my, this whole cabin up in the woods just by myself, and uh, I had a good time. If there's a little scary, uh, <laughs> because I was in the woods by myself and I'm Jewish, but uh, there was a record player and had all my favorite records, so that was nice. And I don't know, it's just it's it's a cool place to go. It's just weird I want to teach there. What can I teach? What did you teach? You taught uh, writing, fiction writing. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, that's uh, so cool. I know a guy. I can I can talk to him. Yeah, because I, I you know one of my best friends growing up went to high school there at the boarding school. And oh, then, cool. Yeah, I had friends who taught acting. You know, a lot of theater kids I knew went to the summer program for right. theater, but they didn't have a, uh, they didn't have creative writing. I tried to I wanted to go there for high school, but I wanted to go there for creative writing. They didn't have the department yet, but I remember they were mm. talking about it in the nineties. Mm. So that's cool to hear that they actually have a writing department now. Yeah, well, oh. the the creative writing thing that I did was for adults, um, okay. but I think they have it for kids also. Um, but it's super cool, and there's probably 50 people that were there for the creative writing thing that I did, but there were hundreds of kids running around. And it was super inspiring just to be around young people who are into the arts. All right, so shall we turn to Digest? Yes, Digest, please. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, so the, uh, we, we've already kind of talked about Gregory Pardlow. He teaches at Columbia. He won the Pulitzer for this book in 2015. I I haven't felt this way about a collection of poetry in years. I thought this was fantastic. And uh, even though 
I gave myself this entire week to read a collection of poetry, which for me is a long time. Usually I devour poetry quickly. I feel rushed and I want to reread this about 10 more times. Yeah. Yeah, me too. How do you guys feel? Any, any initial thoughts? Um, well, I absolutely loved it. I, I texted you guys earlier in the week to say that I was just sort of inhaling it. Um, yeah. But the that was the, like the first third of it. This is one of those unusual books of poetry where um, to get all of it, you you got to do some research. Actually, yeah, like you need to do yeah. a little bit of googling while you're while you're reading it. Um, and typically, like we we talked about this before um, when we were talking about um, poetry a couple episodes ago, and about what Matthew Zapruder had said in his book Why Poetry about like you don't need to understand the canon of literature to be able to understand a great poem which is true but in this case you can understand these poems without understanding the history of black culture or the history of philosophy or the history of the world but if you have the the extra time yes. to be like i don't know what that what he's talking about there just to stop and google it you're going to have an incredible experience reading it this is one of the most dense smart emotional philosophical books of poetry I've ever read and I rank it uh, sort of academically yes. with the classics because mm -hmm. it is pulling from history to um, I mean he, the, we'll talk about it, I'm sure but there's a great poem about that talks about Prince but he's doing this great thing where he's pulling from history and then using history to dive into popular culture and then dive into personal experience so that he's starting out wide and then coming in really narrow onto the person itself mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it's I, I just found it absolutely incredible and inspiring and then having talked to him and met him and, and seen how funny and interesting he is just in real life and you know met his daughter and stuff um and then they show up in the book you're like oh i, I met that person in the hammock um <laughs> <laughs> is cool too but it it makes me just want to sit down with him and go line by line through every single poem mm. yeah. um which i i might figure out a way to do yeah, <laughs> yeah i found it like both dense and direct which is to me the ideal it's like to put it in dumb food terms like a really good sandwich you're like oh i understand all the parts here you know like it's not like kind of moving around in this you know hoity-toity zone but even when everything comes together it feels complicated you know what i mean right um yeah i of course I enjoyed it. It's great. I mean, so, like, I'm looking right now at the poem Aquinas. Yeah, uh, love that poem. Jumping yes. often refers to something you'd rather not get involved in, but when you've left the parking lights on overnight, a jump can mean the difference between being employed and not. Worse than having to buy a swipe from a stranger on the bus is having to flag a neighbor for a jump. People willing to defibrillate flatlining cars on ice scramber mornings are like organ donors and subway heroes. For karma like that, you need a Winnebago covered with solar panels sprouting a fountain of jumper cables so you can spend your day suckling weary vehicles like an electric wet nurse. How good yeah. is that? That's right. amazing. <laughs> but that's like a great poem to point to because like on one hand, like what you just read is just Oh, like the lines and, and the imagery and the, the language. It's, but it's also, the poem is not really uh, a standalone poem. It's also part of something called the Conatus Improvisations, which right. I didn't right. know what the hell that was. So like Todd said, mm -hmm. I had to Google what a Conatus is, which is uh, 
uh, uh, wow, let me look it up again because I'm not going <laughs> to say it right. As far as I can tell, it's 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 uh, a, a thing's willingness to perpetuate itself. Let me let me right. uh, Kanadas. All right, in early philosophies of psychology and metaphysics, Kanadas. Latin for effort, endeavor, impulse, inclination, tendency, undertaking, striving, is an innate inclination of a thing to continue to exist and enhance itself. So he has this section called the Canadas Improvisations, which then goes through different philosophers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is so dense. Like, I feel like each one of these poems, like the Aquinas poem that you just read, works on this sort of level about, you know, needing a jump and and all the, the different ramifications of that. But then it obviously is working on other levels that, you know, I haven't read Aquinas since college, so like now I kind of want to go back right. and find out what the hell he's talking about and why it's related to Aquinas. And I feel like you could write a whole PhD thesis on just that one poem. Um, and you know, my my experience looking up a few of the, the references while reading is that it all works out. Like he is he's thinking about these things in so many different ways um, and satisfying. It, it's satisfying at such a surface level, like just as a poem, um, but it's really even more satisfying on an academic level when you dive into it. It's kind of crazy. I haven't, uh, yeah, you know, like in some ways I feel like poetry kind of falls into one or one category or the other. It's like either you have this sort of expressive, immediate Whitman-esque thing where it's just like, oh, I just want to read it and I don't need a bunch of dusty books and references. I just need the experience of reading this poem. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, like a T.S. Eliot type where it's like so referential and you have to, you know, read, understand Latin in order to get any, you know, any Mm -hmm. of it. Um, And I feel like he's perfectly balanced between both poles. Yeah. And the fascinating thing about, well, there's a lot of fascinating things, but the fascinating thing about these, these first uh, poems in that section that are named for the philosophers is that they are all about transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about cars and horses, but they're also about the transportation of human life, like the, the path that we run. So I mentioned it before, the, the poem about, that talks about Prince, and that is the St. Augustine poem. Um, which has an epigraph. If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks me, I do not know. And the poem goes, Prince calls it little because he imagines a woman's body waist up, the rest corvette, which is French for a sort of girly warship, a chimerical twist on the Freudian cockpit. Who wouldn't want a belly button for a windshield? All us baby ball turret gunners would submit to mother love, as long as we were allowed the illusion that we commanded the vessel. And then he goes on. I mean, and then, so it's, it's working on a lot of levels, obviously. But then you're like, oh, yeah, the, it is super weird that Little Red Corvette is about a woman's vagina. <laughs> I mean, yeah. which is what Little Red Corvette is about. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's just a, it makes you question the things that you already know. And then he digs deeper. Like, does Prince know that Corvette is French for a sort of girly warship? Um, you know, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Who knows? And then there's a, at the end, he goes on to say, We would have swooped the oil fields where pilot lights burned like Zippos at a rock concert to safeguard our memories of weekends washing father's vet, fearing both its pliant fire and our need to ride in pursuit of some unconscious joy, certain only that we'd know 
that we'd know it if it could ever be found. Oh man. So again, he goes from he goes from Prince to the meaning of the word Corvette, and then he goes into Promethean delirium, and then he brings it down to washing his father's car. Um, and you know, it's it, it's the workings of a beautiful mind, really. You know, yeah. and I I feel like he achieved something in this that, like, I've wondered about on a cultural level, which is how we're going to write about you know our current culture in a way that doesn't sound like corporate jargon so mm-hmm. for example this little section about facebook like he manages to write about facebook without it feeling like there's a bunch of little tms mm-hmm. floating around so here it is i finally friended my brother it may be we will never speak again why speak when we have this crystal ball through which to judge one another's lives I imagine this is what the afterlife will be like. I'm ghost, we say, instead of goodbye. So oh. he's talking about Facebook and ghosting people, but without using right. that, like, you know, crappy-sounding, like, nothingness. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. He's like, yeah. is he's not afraid to talk about current, you know, emotional situations, um, but right. he seems like he has power over the words that he's using rather than corporate speak having power over him yeah by not ever saying facebook right there too i mean i mean you make a great point julia like how are we going to talk about this corporatization of our privacy essentially that we've all gone through and the way it's manipulated human relationships and all these things and i mean i was thinking about this even just today when i was looking at writer's instagram and i was like it is really outside of writer's character to have an Instagram. Were you, were you fanboying on Ryder? What was happening? Well, we're Instagram friends, and so I saw the photo mm. of him camping, and I was like, oh, that's a nice picture. And I just thought, it is really weird. Ryder is not the person who should have an Instagram. He doesn't. He hates this shit. But <laughs> even Ryder at some point... It's a job, man. It's a job. Slides into it. Um, yeah. But his... Part of those elegant way of writing emotionally about the technological way our relationships have changed is stirring. Absolutely yeah. stirring. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, the, the other thing, or not the other thing, but the poem that actually moved me the most um, is perhaps the most human, and it's about connection in an interesting way. It's a poem called Wishing Well. Oh, that's one of my favorites, too. Um, you can you can read that one, Ryder. You haven't read one, have you? No. Why don't you read Wishing Well? Outside the Met, a man walks up, sun tweaking the brim sticker of his starter cap. And he says, pardon me, old school. He says, you know, is this a wishing well? Yes, son, I say sideways over my shrug. Throw your bread on the water. I tighten my chest wheezy as Rockaway Beach sand with a pool of faux smoke from my e-cig to cozy the truculence I hotbox alone, and I am at the museum because it is not a bar. Because he appears not to have changed them in days, I eye the heel-chewed hems of his pants and think probably he will ask me for 50 cents any minute now, wait for it, a smoke or something. Central Park displays the frisking transparency of autumn. Tracing paper sky leaves like eraser crumbs gum the pavement. As if deciphering celestial script, I squint and purse off toward the roof line of the museum aloof as he fists two pennies from his pockets, mumbling. And then aloud, my man, he says, hey, my man, I'm going to make a wish for you, too. I am laughing now, so what, you want me to sign a waiver? 
He laughs along, ain't say all that, he says, but you do have to hold my hand and close your eyes. I make a starless night of my face before he asks, are you ready? Yeah, dog, I'm ready. Sure? Sure, let's do this. His rough hand in mine inflates like a blood pressure cuff, and I squeeze back as if we are about to step together from the sill of all resentment and timeless toward the dream source of unneeding the two of us, hurdle sharing the cosmic breast of plenitude when I hear the coins blink against the surface and I cough up daylight like I've just been dragged ashore. See now, you'll never walk alone, he jokes, and is about to hand me back the day he found me in like I was a rubber duck, and he says, you gotta let go, but I feel bottomless, and I know he means well, though I don't believe, and I feel myself shaking my head no when he means let go his hand. Oh. 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 Yeah. Man. I make Ooh. a starless night of my face. Yeah. Oh. And I think this, this, this poem coming at the end of the collection is really effective, too, because throughout the, throughout the collection, you've had these these incredibly academic poems that are like really full of references. And, and then like, I would say every third or fourth poem is, is much more sort of straightforward. Like this one where it's kind of narrative that he has a poem about taking his cousin, his 12 year old cousin to go see um, a raisin in the sun on Broadway when P. Yeah. Diddy was doing it. And, um, and then he, you know, he has poems like that that are sort of just like this one. You kind of get it, you get a scene, you get a, a moment, but this one in particular, because it connects, um, it connects those sort of personal anecdotes and, and everything really well to this thread of like the African-American experience and, that has just been suffused throughout this entire book. Um, mm-hmm. And, and his, his relationship, I think of, as this sort of intellectual, uh, maybe over intellectualized guy and then, you know, the sort of human experience of holding somebody's hand. And in this mm-hmm. case, uh, you know, probably another black man, I'm assuming. Um, and, you know, making a wish into a well and how, how that sort of like grounded human connection uh, means so much to him. Uh, makes sense after you've been reading this book and realizing, like you're saying, Todd, what a beautiful mind he has. But also what kind mm-hmm. of how that beautiful mind has probably led him into some abstractions that are uncomfortable and um, right. some, some things that have distanced him from a human experience. I, f- I feel like a lot of this book is about trying to get to uh, get back to a human at the heart of um, African-American literature in particular, right off the bat with that first poem called written by himself, oh, which is so beautiful one, as yeah. a poem. And, and it sort of has this autobiographical, like, you know, song uh, about mm. being born and all the, the stuff that precedes you, but also the title written by himself, which is a direct reference to slave narratives. Um, every slave narrative, like if you ever read Diary in the Life of a, or Narrative of the Life of a Slave Girl or Aluda Equianos, they always had to have a title page that said written by himself or written mm. by herself in order to declare that this wasn't a white person creating a slave narrative, that this was written by an actual black person, because of course, back then it seemed so impossible that a slave could read and write. And right. um, so the fact that he opens his book with that title and, um, and then throughout it, the, the, the poem that really killed me and that I ended up spending, no joke, like two hours on is can the poem. Can I just point out one thing though, before yeah. we go on Wishing Well, there's a line in Wishing Well that, that really clarifies a lot in the book for me, which is, I am at the museum because it is not a bar. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the best. Which which tells me, oh, 
I'm reading about an alcoholic yeah. also. Yeah. Um, which was not clear to me at that point. Um, so go ahead. I'm sorry. But yeah. That, that, that line made me go back and reread other poems yeah. mm-hmm. through that rubric. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So there's this poem called Copyright, um, mm-hmm. which is at first struck me as just a very strange poem. It, it's called Copyright. And then there are sort of subheadings within it. Um, the first one says Paul Green someone's name named Paul Green, which I Googled and got nothing out of. Um, <laughs> but then on the second, it, it, the, the poem begins, Paul Green, of course I knew the story of the scorpion and the frog. I've known Biggers all my life. And I was like, oh, Bigger uh, from Native Son, Richard Wright. And then I started reading the rest of the poem. And the second section of the poem is called, Char- is, is subheaded Charles Lavelle or Leval. And I was like, who's that? And then the, the third part of the poem is Richard Wright. And the fourth part of the poem is Robert Nixon. I was like, who are all these people? So after a lot of time digging around, uh, because Richard Wright was the only name I, I really recognized having read Native Son in college. Um, so Richard Wright's novel, Native Son, which is I'm sure most of our listeners Remarkable. know, is you know, an incredible book. And it was just a, a seminal work of African-American literature that sort of changed everything. But it was based on the real life story of a, a guy named Robert Nixon, who was the last subheading. Um, and then Paul Green helped Richard Wright adapt his novel into a stage play. And Charles Lavelle or Leval was a um, reporter who wrote about Robert Nixon, the, the murderer who um, became bigger in Richard Wright's novel. So really it's a poem about all the different um, ways in which Robert Nixon as a human being, who's this person who killed multiple people with a brick, uh, a black man who was eventually sentenced to death, and all the ways, all the different people who have written Robert Nixon into existence in different mm-hmm. ways, right? You have, you, and, and the fact that the, 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 the poem kind of works in reverse. So you have Paul Green, who was adapting a novel by a black man. He's a white guy who was adapting a novel by a black man. And then you have Charles Leville, who's writing a sort of journalistic interpretation of this black criminal. And then you had Richard Wright, who was a black author trying to fictionalize. It is so brilliant. Like the level, I, 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 I've read this poem like 10 times. I've written a million notes and I feel like there's still more to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it is to me like the heart of this entire collection because it's it's on one hand like this sort of interrogation of the african-american literary tradition um it also is peeling back the layers of that tradition to try and get at an actual human at the heart of it the robert nixon in this case but i feel like it's very similar to the hand he's holding and wishing well right this idea Mm -hmm. of like oh there's a human being here there's an actual uh, a black body at, at the heart of these traditions that that he is writing himself sort of out of and around there's just so much going on here. I, 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 I kind of feel like this is a Bible of African-American literature. <laughs> yeah, that, that poem in particular is one where I was like, I need to actually slow down and do the research, just like you were saying, because by the time yeah. I got to the Richard Wright portion, it, it starts to become, it starts to refer back to the other things. You're like, right. oh, I have no idea what I'm reading. But once you know who Paul Green, Charles Liebel, and um, Robert Nixon are, you can go back and read it. But the amazing thing is it still makes sense irrespective 
of not knowing who they are. Well, it's still because, enjoyable. Yeah. Right? You could still the, read it and just love the language because he's so right. good with language. I mean, it's so fun to read. Every line in this poem, in this book is, is fun to read. It's, it's satisfying yeah. to your brain. And I think that what he achieves is what my dad always wanted when I was nine, which is it makes it exciting, fun, and cool to go look things up. Yes. Not like, exactly. oh, I have to. It's like, ooh, I'm on a little literary poetry escape room. What's the next step? <laughs> like, exactly. what can I, what can I grab to understand this better? To add in a little piece of my understanding, um, and it, it makes it so fun to. It makes it more than a book and like this magical little thing in your house, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know the. The, the cool thing, too, is when he gets personal, like there's there's Wishing Well, but then there's also um, a poem like um, Problema 4, um, which begins, At 13, I asked my father for a tattoo. I might as well have asked him for a bar mitzvah, which is funny. Um, uh, like, it's this entertaining poem about, you know, thinking that you're a man and, you know, all the things that you think you deserve when you become a man but then it concludes with this line that his father would say to him and it's a take on a line we've all heard before but it's got a twist at the end my um richard Pryor says we are bound to fuck up our kids one way or another my father would split the difference and this is he's quoting his father i made you he'd say i can unmake you and make another one just like you like you've all heard, <laughs> I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Yeah. But you've never heard, I brought you into this world, I didn't take you out. And you know what? I can make another one just like you. Yeah. Like that then calls into question, like what is, what am I? Like who am I? What is my existence if I can just be remade because the chef is still in the kitchen? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. well, my favorite, my favorite section of that poem is this this section. He's talking about his, his father. His laughter was my first lesson in the human Ponzi scheme of paternalism, the self-electing indenture to the promise of material inheritance, men claiming a hollow authority because, simply, their fathers had claimed a hollow authority. I, reading that, I was like, yes, this is what fatherhood feels like and what sonhood feels like. It's the Ponzi scheme. What are we all doing? None of us know what we're doing. And it's so brilliant. I, I mean, but... <laughs> like that well I want to tattoo that on my back that is just like <laughs> it's so brilliant so brilliant I, and speaking of parenthood the poem I can't find it right now but about um, like wheeling his daughter around in the grocery store oh yeah coming upon another parent whose kid is having a meltdown yeah is so good where is that one yeah on. that, that's a really early great on, one I think um, uh, we should also say that um, so a lot of this a lot of these poems sound like they are narrative poems and a great many of them are but he also messes with form quite a bit so for oh, yeah. those of you um, who are poets out there this is also a masterwork in form um, yeah. he switches form essentially in every single poem um, you know from 
from um, Slant Rhymes, all sorts of different crazy shit. Well, he does. Uh, I love he has these, uh, like, the course description poems, a couple oh, of those. Oh, God, I love those. <laughs> I knew you would. Yes. <laughs> In the academic world, it's, like, perfect. Yeah, so he has these incredibly obtuse, complicated um, uh, courses that could kind of exist. And they, they right. read, like... <laughs> Like classes I would have loved to have signed up for when I was oh, yeah. a super pretentious nineteen-year-old. Um, I have yeah. found one. Yes, yeah. um, shades of green, envy and enmity in the American cultural imaginary. <laughs> Images of the stud and the buck have an have an amorously crafted resonance burnished by cultural anxieties and addicts logic toward the habit they place in the mind and the mysteries we lay at their feet. So you can take that and, and get yourself an AWP um, panel. Yeah. <laughs> you just can't face that. Um, this course will begin by focusing on models represented in the 1994 Charles Russell film The Mask and Ang Lee's 2003 yes. The Hulk. The mojo and the genetic regression and the hypersexuality and the rage, colon, these qualities are thrust and airbrushed onto the the bacchic body of the other as we fantasize that we pre- and he just goes on and on and oh on. my god and- this reminds me yeah. so much <laughs> at columbia i signed up for a graduate course there was a graduate course that was open to undergraduates and i was like i'm gonna do it it was called the society of the spectacle and it was all like sort of taking guide to boards the the society of the spectacle and sort of applying it but it was exactly this i lasted in that class for like four weeks before i was like Nobody knows what they're talking about. It was co-taught by like four different professors. And it was clear that they just wanted an excuse for the four of them to sit in a room with graduate students and like riff on David Lynch films and uh, maps. And like, and it was a lot of cool ideas, but the idea that it was literally like none of this cohered into anything that made any sense. It was just like genius people getting into a room together to like spew like random ideas at each other. And I'm like, I had to leave the class, but uh, you know, at the time when I read the course description, I was like, "This is going to explain everything to me." And then I sat in the <laughs> class. I was like, "No one knows what they're talking about." But uh, oh, it's perfect. On a more positive note, this one reminded me of uh, I have a good friend who's a sociology professor at UConn, and she has to teach race, class, and gender. And at a certain point, she just got sick of it and started teaching it as a not sick of it because those aren't important, but because the students are so disengaged or right. know it all So right. she started teaching it as a sci-fi literature course. Oh, how cool. So 100% of it is like, okay, we're going to read futuristic literature and like talk about race, class, and gender as performed by aliens. <laughs> and it's so fascinating really to hear smart. her talk about it. Um, because well, you know- students are so much more comfortable being like, wow, these female aliens are really taken advantage of or whatever. Right. <laughs> Well, that's actually, it reminds me, when I first read Handmaid's Tale in college, it was a lit class, but it was really a feminist theory class, because we read Handmaid's Tale and Woman on the Edge of Time and Housekeeping and all this other stuff, Um, and it was presented as just, you know, a regular lit class, but it, like, we we learned about Adrian Rich in this class, so it actually gave me this fundamental understanding of feminist literature of the 1970s, early 1980s. But it was couched in a way that even a dumb frat boy like me could go in and uh, and learn something. That's yeah. my friend's entire trick. It's a good trick. <laughs> it's a good it's trick. Really it's a good trick. Yeah. Um, so the last thing for me just about this book um, is it might sound daunting to, to readers the way we've talked about it, about needing to Google things and all that, but it's really not daunting. No. Um, you know, it, it's fun and it, because it's like, it's like a literary mystery. 
You know, it's, yeah. it's like a choose your own adventure. If you just open this up and, and poke around, each each poem is going to lead you into something that's going to edify you in a different way. The ones where you don't need to do any searching around are just awesome regardless. Um, but the ones that do require some some searching, it's summer. Get some summer education in you. Like this is a book that will teach you things about um, about philosophy, about yeah. faith, about. I had yourself. no idea that Althusser had strangled his wife. Like I no, had read, I had, no I had read his philosophy, or you know, encountered it in postmodern lit, whatever. And then like be like, oh, he strangled his wife. And then to read what like it's a long poem, Epic too, like poem, all yeah. these incredible passages that he where he's trying to get into the mind of somebody killing his own wife and rationalizing. Oh my god, it's so good. So good. Uh, oh, the other thing that he does that's really cool. <laughs> uh, he's got this section uh, under Cervantes. If it answers no other purpose, this long catalog of authors will serve to give a surprising look of authority to your book. And then, <laughs> and then he lists just a bunch of amazing poets, just usually by their first name or their last name. So he's got uh, uh, Aaron, Camille, Ruth E. Skoog. Um, so these are all uh, poets. Camille Dungy is Camille, um, whose great book we read, um, Smith Blue, many years ago. Skoog is Ed Skoog, um, who was actually up in uh, Idlewild with me. He goes down, there's Zapruder, which is our friend, Matthew Zapruder. Um, so it, but it's also just funny. Like, he, yeah. he's clearly fucking with the idea of what intelligence means also. Yeah. And what it means to pose intelligence. Yeah. Which I love. Like, um, ha here's the ultimate name drop. A list right. of a million yeah. <laughs> first a name of... bases. Yeah. <laughs> Under Cervantes. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so I, I just absolutely love this. And uh, I've ordered all of his other books. I'm reading his his memoir right now that just came out. Um, and so I, I'm i going to figure out a way to get him back to Southern California so I can just yeah. talk to him ad nauseum about everything that's in his book. Yeah, I like the way that you approach living writers like some kind of pokemon goal (laughs) i'm gonna catch them how can i get them in my orbit (laughs) do you think todd holds up like a a, does he have an app on his phone that you know like the pokemon apps where they go around like augmented reality where he holds it up to gregory pardlow and it's like ding 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 (laughs) unlock gregory pardlow great poet in my midst (laughs) <laughs> and then you make them battle. Oh, I, that I would like. Yes. More writers yeah. should fight. Throw down. Absolutely. Put Gregory Pardlow and Major Jackson in a room. But <laughs> love, they have to slam poetry their way out of it. They'll just I'm have actually, a nice conversation. That's be great. Yeah. I'm going to be at a, a conference in November with Major Jackson. I just signed up to, do, to teach at the Sanibel Island Conference in November in Florida. I don't know if that's hurricane season or not, so if I die, it was a pleasure doing this show with you guys. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully uh, <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> I would prefer to live. <laughs> what are your last thoughts, Julia, before we close off this uh, fascinating discussion of Digest by Greg uh, I just love what you guys just said about summer reading. This feels to me like what summer reading for nerds always was for me. Like yeah. I'm the person who read Anna Karenina on the beach. So if you were that person... But now you're more tired and have less time and just want to read short poems over and over. This is your book. 
this made good summer reading while I was camping because, you know, watching yeah. a three-year-old, being able to, like, steal moments to just read one poem at a time, yeah. you know, it's really perfect. Um, so, yeah, highly recommend it. Get it, get it, get it. Oh, there's also, I should just say, there's a great poem called Bipolar. That is the perfect 12 lines about what it is to be bipolar. I just love this book. The guy's a genius. Kind of makes me sick. Okay. Well, this is going down the tubes. <laughs> Listeners, you're great. Tell us what poems you're reading this summer. Yeah, let us know what poems you're yeah. reading. Unless it's Rupee. If you're reading Rupee, we don't want to know about it. Yeah. This is the, okay, one you last You are seriously thing. poking the bee's nest here. I am. If, if someone's enjoying Rupee, go read Gregory Pardlow yeah. after you read Rupee. That's, That's what you should do. That's what you should do. There's your summer assignment, kids. If you've loved an Instagram poem about the birds, go read Wishing Well by Gregory Pardlow. Oh, no.